I considered leaving the company because they were going through a bankruptcy. I decided maybe I should stay. It was a great decision because many of my peers ended up leaving, going to other jobs, giving up because they thought the company is not going to survive. But in that contentious environment, very difficult environment, a company going through a chapter 11 restructuring and not certain about the future, I was raising my hand saying, give me more. I'll do this. I'll do that. And ended up having the opportunity to sit in chairs that in a normal, successful company, I probably would not have had. So one path out of graduate school is I could have gone to, I remember an opportunity to go to Frito-Lay or or one of the investment banks, and I, I could have joined a very successful company and perhaps been on a very methodical path that would have led me to middle management. Instead, I ended up at 7-Eleven where there was a ton of adversity and a bunch of problems and it turned into opportunity. Hello and welcome. I'm your host Pratish Sanyal and you're listening to The 1% Project. Conversations that will help you understand how some of the smartest minds build, scale and operate new ideas and ventures. If you enjoy these conversations, do share and subscribe. My next guest on The 1% Project is James W. Keyes. James was the CEO of 7-Eleven and later on became the chairman and CEO of Blockbuster. James graduated from the College of Holy Cross and has an MBA from Columbia Business School. He's also the founder of Education is Freedom Foundation. In this conversation, he talks about how curiosity and adversity has helped him lead organizations such as 7-Eleven and Blockbuster, the need for entrepreneurial thinking within big corporations, the art of negotiation, how has 7-Eleven been able to keep itself ahead of the curve, and why others have not been able to copy its growth model. Why did he join Blockbuster? Would Blockbuster be a different company if they would have accepted to buy Netflix? And are the principles of leadership being disrupted by the new generation of leaders? If you have any feedback about this conversation, speaker or topic recommendations, you can drop me a line at 1%.live. You can also sign up for the 1% Project's newsletter at 1%.live to get the show notes and the key insights from this conversation and every other conversation. What role has curiosity played in your career? I think it is everything. I know that sounds a bit extreme. I'll give you an example. I'm working on a book now, and the book is called Education is Freedom. Uh, it's the name of a foundation I, I had the good fortune to, to start almost 20 years ago, but I'd also like to take it into a book form and ultimately into maybe a series of content, online content that can explore this idea that education is freedom. In the book, an entire chapter will be dedicated to curiosity because at the root of education, first of all, I, I am the product of education is freedom. I am the first person in my family to go to college. I love my brothers and sisters, but the life I lead is so different from the life they lead, not because of money at all. And that's where everybody often makes the mistake and they think, oh yeah, you went to school and you've got all this money and you can do these things and you fly airplanes. That's got nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with the more I've learned, the more freedom I have to do things, 
whether it's fly an airplane or paint or sculpt or go to a different country and speak another language and enjoying my time in Japan because I learned the language and understand the culture as a result. All of these things have nothing to do with money. They have everything to do with learning. And if you dial that back and you say, Jim, why did you learn? Why did you have this appetite for education to keep going to school? Why did you want to become a pilot? Why did you want to become an artist? Why did you want to learn how to play music and write songs? It's because I'm curious. I'm just curious about those things. And the more curious I am about something, the more I dig in and the more I want to learn about it, the more I learn about it, the more I can do. It's really a very simple formula. You have dealt with adversity personally and professionally. How has adversity enabled you? I have a chance every once in a while to, to talk with young students. And I, I try to explain. It's really hard. They look at me and they say, oh, yeah, pff, what do you know about adversity? Yeah. Well, when you walk home from school... And you see a red sign posted in your house and it's got the word condemned on it. And you don't even know what the word condemned means. You have to go look it up or ask someone what it means. And then you find out, well, that means you have to leave and you have nowhere to go. That's a definition of adversity, right? Or when you're running a company like Blockbuster and you're on the way to digital success and you bought a streaming company and you think you're going to be leaving Netflix in the dust and the entire financial market collapses around you and the banks won't lend you money to satisfy a, a billion dollars of debt on the balance sheet, that's adversity. You know? And yet those things that you can overcome, you learn from. One of my favorite quotes is, is a Nelson Mandela quote. He says, I never lose, I win or I learn. And if you can look at adversity, and it's so hard to do when you're in the middle of a crisis, middle of the world falling around, part around you or personal devastation because something's happened in your family. It's a horrible situation. And there's two ways you can respond to it. You can have your head down and become the victim. Woe was me. Or you can keep your head up and say, look, I will, I'll get through this. And on the other side of this horrible experience I'm going through, there's probably a learning that I will take away from this. And maybe it's just good scar tissue, which sometimes can make you stronger. Most of the time, there's a hidden learning and there's a strength that comes from knowing that you were able to make it through to the other side. And that gives you this quiet advantage over someone who hasn't had to endure something like that. It was a kind of a defining moment as a child to look around and say, man, I've been through some horrible stuff. I, why in the world is this happening to me? Jeez, uh, that's not fair. My buddies don't have these kinds of problems. They live in nice houses and they have running water and they have parents that have jobs and normal family. Why do I have to deal with all this stuff? And yet I also realized they had issues too. And that in many ways I was stronger than them because of the things that I had to endure. We don't practice our wins and our learnings. In smaller settings, we only start looking at them when we are really faced with something major. There are wins and learnings every day. If you're able to actually observe them and appreciate them, it makes a huge difference and builds a mental muscle to go through adversity when it hits you the hardest. And you observing your life when it happened as a child has probably helped you build that muscle as well and observe that I can get through this. I'm sure 
whatever comes next, I'll be able to deal with it. You said something really important. You referenced the need to appreciate the wins and the things that you do have. And I think that's a that's an important part of the formula is the idea of gratitude. A lot of people lose the notion of gratitude, of being grateful for the things you do have, not worrying about the things you don't have, but gratitude for the things that you are blessed with, whether it's your health or a place to live, a warm bed, those things, however small, it seems like if you are able to appreciate the little things, the things you do have, then when you accomplish other things, it's just gravy. And you think, wow, this, that's just great. But I, I think it's an important part of the formula. One small practice that I started a few years ago, and I still do it, every day before I go to bed, I try for 30 seconds at least to remember everything that happened positive. Be grateful. And as you said, there is a bed, there is a house, there's electricity. I have the opportunity to live in an advanced world. All of that adds up for me as an individual to really look at things when things are not my way and still say, okay, these things are happening well and these things I need to do better. It's a small muscle that you keep building when you are in a good place. True. It's interesting. I, I, I had a chance one time to attend a session. I think it was at the Aspen Institute and the Dalai Lama was there. I thought, wow, this is really interesting. Boy, that, that being in his presence, he has this sense of peace about him, just inner calm and peace and all that. And I didn't get a one-on-one -on -one chance to chat with him, but I did get a chance to chat with his number one person, aide or his assistant that was there with him. And I said, what is it about the Dalai Lama? Why? You're around him every day. Is he always like this? Or, you know, <laughs> come on, he, he must not always have this level of peace and, and happiness. And he said, said, yeah, I've got to tell you, it's real. And he said, I think the secret is he wakes up at 4 a.m. And, and he meditates for a couple of two or three hours every single day. And it's all about gratitude. And it's all about happiness. And he comes out of that meditation and he spends a whole day being happy and grateful. How do you reflect on your journey with 7-Eleven? It was a fabulous journey. I never, I didn't grow up thinking, gee, I want to be a retailer. I wanted to be an astronaut, actually, not a, not a retailer. And as many people do with their career, you take different paths based on opportunities. And I ended up in, in an oil company, Gulf Oil, right out of graduate school. Why? Because I wanted to be in the oil business? No, because they offered me a job. It was an internship opportunity. I was starving to death. <laughs> and, and it was a, a chance to, to get work. And then they offered me a full-time job, and I ended up in the energy business. 7-Eleven had acquired an oil company. Gulf, the company I started with, was merging with Chevron, and that opened a door, and I ended up with 7-Eleven on the gasoline side of the business. After I got to 7-Eleven, the company went through a series of difficult times. It faced adversity. And again, maybe because I had been through so much, it didn't bother me that the company was in turmoil. I considered leaving the company because they were going through a bankruptcy. I decided maybe I should stay. It was a great decision because many of my peers ended up leaving, going to other jobs, giving up because they thought the company is not going to survive. But in that contentious environment, very difficult environment, a company going through a chapter 11 restructuring and not certain about the future, 
I was raising my hand saying, give me more. I'll do this. I'll do that. And ended up having the opportunity to sit in chairs that in a normal, successful company, I probably would not have had. So one path out of graduate school is I could have gone to, I remember an opportunity to go to Frito-Lay or, or one of the investment banks, and I, I could have joined a very successful company and perhaps been on a very methodical path that would have led me to middle management. Instead, I ended up at 7-Eleven where there was a ton of adversity and a bunch of problems, and it turned into opportunity to sit in chairs that I never would have had the opportunity to sit in. So I got to be chief financial officer. I got to be head of marketing, head of operations, things that because of the circumstances of the company, I was able to do, and it ended up helping me grow and giving me the opportunity ultimately to be chief executive officer because I had been able to move very quickly through those other previous roles. You've been an entrepreneur within 7-Eleven as well. The Budweiser can vanilla coke so how do you foster entrepreneurship within an organization especially a big one when the objective is to keep status quo not change the wheel i used to call myself a corporate entrepreneur i'll tell you a funny story i was actually nominated for ernst and young when they had the entrepreneur of the year thing my local audit partner said jim we're going to nominate you we're going to ride your tail all the way to uh, hawaii where they have the big thing you've done so much transformation at 7-eleven man they'll they're going to be all over this. And I didn't even make it out of Dallas. I didn't make it to the first round. And they caught me and they said, you can't be an entrepreneur. He's a corporate guy. Corporate guys, well, entrepreneurs are like just the opposite of a corporate guy. And I really had my feelings hurt. Come on, I'm an entrepreneur. But I started thinking about it. And you think about the very definition of entrepreneur. It's someone who, who sets out on their own. It's an individual. It's a, someone who breaks the norms, right? In contrast, the definition of corporate is coming together as one. It's a body. It's not an individual. It's acting as one together. It's almost an oxymoron, the idea of a corporate entrepreneur. I have always taken that very seriously and, and pointed out the irony in it because corporations, as much as big corporations, billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar public companies, as much maybe more than startups, need entrepreneurs. And yet the environment beats the entrepreneur out of you. Unfortunately, many corporate cultures cause conformity. They force people into a norm and they discourage the outliers. And so they try to force people into a consensus mode. That's really not good for the company. And in fact, I call it big company disease and you see it IBM. who's a, a young startup, aggressive technology company. What happened? They got big and fat and corporate and they lost that entrepreneurial spirit. And you see it now happening. It'll, it will happen. Microsoft was wildly entrepreneurial. Was. And then they'd be corporate and they struggle with that now. How to keep that innovation, how to keep that cutting edge. So I think it is important and it's hard for corporations to do. It starts at the top. You have to have tone at the top where the leader encourages people to take risks and to see themselves internally as entrepreneurs. And that's, it's what I tried to fall at 7-Eleven or Blockbuster, it's, but it's hard to do in a big company. Let's talk about negotiation. It's an essential aspect of leadership. 
you're constantly negotiating for your own time with your own peers, with external partners, M&As. What are your observations and learnings from negotiation? It's all about communication and trust and honesty. We've all dealt with it. We've all dealt with the person on the other side of the table that can you trust them or not? If you think about some of the most successful negotiations in history were done over a handshake. And you think about that today and you think, wow, in this world of lawyers, they would they would have a heart attack if, you, <laughs> if they thought a CEO signed a deal over a, over a handshake because they want to paper everything. But that trust, there, so there's a tendency to think that you can replace the fundamentals of trust and communication and relationship with good good legal structure and technically perhaps you can but i'm not sure you'll get to the same place in terms of the same level of cooperation same kind of of a benefit of a win-win between two groups that are negotiating unless you've got those fundamentals of trust and relationship 7-eleven kicked off as a company which used to sell ice it has been able to build such a big footprint across the world and there are a number of corporations and startups who have tried it, but they've never been able to replicate it. Why is that? If you look at the history of 7-Eleven, you'll find it had to keep reinventing itself. In fact, we I mentioned the challenge the company went through in the 80s. We almost went out of business because we had lost sight of what our real purpose was, that we were all about convenience. And we had gotten ourselves to the point that we thought we were selling beer and soft drinks and cigarettes. And yet everybody was selling beer and soft drinks and cigarettes. So 7-Eleven almost went away. They had 10 years of declining same store sales because they weren't keeping up with change. So we went through, again, adversity, right? Bankruptcy. Oh, it's horrible. But that shock to the system forced 7-Eleven to change. And it came out of that horrible experience that severe period of adversity as a better company because it recognized the importance of keeping up with change. And we then were able to reinvent ourselves and refocus on other things that that customers needed more conveniently other than beer and soft drinks and cigarettes. And that process continues. They've been very successful with it. They've grown to now 80,000 stores worldwide. But they have to keep that competitive edge. And if they ever lose sight, the need to keep up with change every single day, then they will again fall into that trap and could slide into irrelevance and could go away. So it's a constant, it's a constant challenge. What made you decide to join Blockbuster? I, I saw the same opportunity. I, I, I saw them stuck in the same situation that 7-Eleven had previously. They had defined themselves as uh, a company doing DVDs. Now they had evolved into DVDs by mail, but there was so much more that they could be doing. And the vision was to be able to make it more convenient for people to access media entertainment. So Blockbuster, I didn't see Blockbuster as a DVD rental business, which some people did. I saw Blockbuster as a convenient access to media entertainment business, and that wasn't going to ever go away. People always will want convenient access to some form of media entertainment. Now, what form will that take? You see a, a lot of things written about Blockbuster didn't keep up with Netflix. Netflix at the time was doing DVDs by mail. 
And I didn't really see that as the future. The opportunity to chase subscribers, yes, that had elements of importance, but it wasn't necessarily the key to the convenient access to media entertainment because the subscription model is by nature, it's the all-you-can-eat buffet. Now, some entertainment's always going to be available via the all-you-can-eat buffet. That's what Netflix offered even when they started streaming. But to be able to offer a broad range, to be the aggregator, that's what our stores used to be, is the aggregator of contents, so new releases, TV shows, movies, international, all kinds of anything you possibly want was there under the roof at the Blockbuster store. Our objective was to build a digital offering that would allow Blockbuster to be the aggregator. And that meant not just subscribers for long tail content like Netflix could offer, but also to be able to have new release movies available on a pay-per-view basis, to be able to have original content potentially. Never as path that Netflix went down creating that content ourselves. That was always going to be a very risky venture. We never saw ourselves doing original content. But to be able to be the one place you can get original content without having to sit and figure out, let's see, is it Hulu? Is it Amazon? Is it Disney? Which is the challenge we all have today, unfortunately. Would Blockbuster be different if it would have bought Netflix? People love to tell the story that my predecessor, I didn't have this opportunity, but supposedly my predecessor had a chance to buy Netflix for $50 million or something. And I honestly, I, I don't think it was a bad decision for him to say no at the time because Netflix didn't have anything that Blockbuster couldn't do and couldn't even do arguably better because we had the exact same model of DVDs by mail. But if you didn't want the movie that you ordered a week ago by mail, you could bring the Blockbuster movie over to the store and exchange it for something you wanted to see. So you, you had the ultimate flexibility. And we had the ability to go streaming and we had kiosks. We had uh, a program called basically that offered the, the customers content any way you want it. You want it by mail? Do you want it in the store? Do you want it in a kiosk? Do you want it electronically? We can give that to you. It was called Total Access was the name of the program. We had a pretty good and viable offering versus Netflix. What I think was the big difference and unfortunately what hurt Blockbuster was not Netflix or Redbox necessarily. It was the financial market collapse. You see, Blockbuster had a billion dollars of debt on the balance sheet. And a third of that debt came due in 2009. So even if we had, let's say we had bought Netflix, <laughs> we still would have had the problem of a third of our debt due in 2009. And the banks were shut down at the end of 2008. So even though we had doubled the earnings of the company, even though we had been given by the rating agencies a two-notch upgrade in our debt rating, we were actually, even though we had acquired a streaming video company called MovieLink and were very well positioned to be streaming videos into the future, the reality was a third of our debt, $350 million, came due in 09, and we couldn't get it refinanced. And the studios eventually cut our credit terms to prepay, and that forced Blockbuster into bankruptcy. When you take bets about the future, Dish TV bought it with the idea of thinking that 5G is going to become the next big thing, which actually hasn't, well, let's say today it has happened, but it's like almost 10 years out. So those kind of 
kind of decisions that are made thinking about the future and they don't pan out how do you reflect on them like you're constantly making decisions and some of them are futuristic some of them are immediate you place a, a strategic bet netflix placed a strategic bet when they were up against the wall and they rolled the dice this was a big bet 100 million dollars they paid for a show called house of cards with kevin spacey i don't think i would have made that bet because to bet $100 million on original content that could have flopped. Nobody knew if the customer would, if the, if the audience would really that show. It turned out to be a wildly successful show. I give him a lot of credit because Ted Saranis, the head of programming over there, is genius. And he saw it and he believed in it and he invested in it along with Reed Hastings. So to their credit, that was a good bet and it paid off. It could have flopped and it could have sunk Netflix if it didn't work. We all face those bets. So Dish made a bet. When they bought the Blockbuster brand, they had been quietly buying up Spectrum to give them bandwidth because they believed the internet was not right. Because even today, it's not the best experience. If you've ever had trouble with your Wi-Fi in your house and it's not streaming and it's buffering and it's even today, our bandwidth isn't great in a lot of households. And their view was that when we get to 5G on our phones, which they thought would happen a lot earlier, they thought this would be 10 years ago, that it would be much easier to download a movie via your mobility. And they were going to use the stores. Their plan was they were looking at T-Mobile and Sprint. They had hoped to actually get into the telecom business and offer customers not only a more robust cellular service, mobile service, but also have access to uh, a broad range of content. It was going to be, a, I think, a brilliant strategy, but they placed the bet in, in acquiring Blockbuster and acquiring all that spectrum, and they were probably 10 years ahead of their time. So it didn't work out. Before we close, let's talk about the present generation and the new leaders that have come in the ecosystem. Are the principles of leadership being challenged and disrupted by the present generation? I, I think... They're right. I think leadership has to change. And a lot of, and it scares a lot of people, especially, you know, guys my age. Like, oh my gosh, these new, these kids, what are they thinking? They want to create DAOs. That's who could run a company like that? Or it's, that's communism, isn't it? <laughs> Wait, how can that be? In a capitalist world, you can't have everybody making the decision collectively. How does that work? That's what a guy my age says. I look at it and say, leadership's about change. And if that's a change that's going to work, have at it. So I am probably uh, unique for a dinosaur my age in that I embrace these new ideas because I've never seen leadership as a static thing. There's all kinds of books, leadership by walking around, management by walking around. There's servant leadership and there's all these gurus that have written about the definitive ways to lead successfully. Throw them all away. Leadership is about change. It's about adapting to change and change happens every single day. And whatever I learned about leadership last week, I don't know. I might have to change it next week based on a new set of facts and a new set of people and a new set of circumstances. So yeah, bottom line is this next generation is really shaking things up when it comes to leadership. And you know what? They're right. And it's a, it's a healthy, positive thing.
Jim, that's a great place to close this conversation. Thanks for being on the show. Happy to join you. Thanks for the opportunity. Hope we get to do it again soon. You can find the show notes for this episode and every other episode on 1%.live. If you enjoyed this conversation, share it on social media and leave a review. See you next time.